Hello and welcome back to Chasing Emmy, the podcast for Emmy voters, their friends, and fans of the show. I'm Henry Goldblatt, Editor-in-Chief of Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined with two of my friends, Kristen Baldwin, TV critic for EW. Hello. And Lynette Rice, Editor-at-Large. Hi. Hi. We've got a great episode coming your way this week. We're going to be talking about the best drama category, which features some of your most favorite shows in history. We've also got a special guest in the form of Milo Ventimiglia, the star of This Is Us, who's going to be talking about that show and some of the preparation work he does to get into character etc. But we're going to dig deep into the history of the category first. And Kristen, I was wondering if you could take us through some of the previous winners. Sure. Starting in 2013, uh, we've got Breaking Bad. Also in 2014, Breaking Bad. Then in 2015 and 2016, Game of Thrones. And last year, The Handmaid's Tale. Obviously, Game of Thrones wasn't eligible last year, which opened up the field a bit. What did you think of Handmaid's Tale winning last year? Did you think it was the deserving winner, or would you have liked to see something else? Well, the nominees were Better Call Saul, The Crown, Handmaid's Tale, House of Cards, Stranger Things, This Is Us, and Westworld. And out of those, Handmaid's Tale is excellent. I have a soft spot for Better Call Saul. I think it's incredible. It's the Breaking Bad prequel. That said, I think Handmaid's Tale deserved the win. Uh, Lynette, how about you? Well, I, I think the best way to answer it is how the ratings were for the show. And I, I'm pretty sure it hit a new low last year. <laughs> Handmaids was the first streaming show ever to win this category. What was interesting in going through the history of this category is how many repeat winners there are. It seems like once a show gets hold of this category, like it doesn't let go. For example, Mad Men won from 2008 to 2012. And I feel like one of the reasons Handmaid's Tale was able to squeak in was because Game of Thrones wasn't eligible because they didn't have episodes last year. Absolutely. Yeah. As uh, you pointed out, dynasties, not the show, but the thing, dynasties really uh, rule in this category. And once Game of Thrones is back this year, it'll be obviously a tough competition to see if anything else can beat it. I know. But if you if you just think it from a, a consumer point of view, I mean, Ultimately, the Emmys are there because they're, it's, it's meant to honor their own. It means the Academy, it's meant to honor their own. But as a consumer turning into an award show, because you like to see all the pretty people in their pretty costumes. Costumes? Uh, costumes. I mean, if you think about it, it is kind of a costume. <laughs> That's true. I mean, they look at the show and it's like, what the hell is this? I've never even heard of this before. But people have heard of The Handmaid's Tale. They heard of Breaking Bad, certainly. Last year, This Is Us, Stranger Things. Those were all phenomena. Well, yes. I mean, those are a little better, but I think they're still, including my father has never heard of The Handmaid's Tale. And in fact, I got that call, what the hell's The Handmaid's Tale? <laughs> So. <laughs> this just in, Lynette's father, not a fan yeah. of The Handmaid's Tale. Well, Lynette, you like to talk about the fact that the broadcast shows have been really snubbed from the Emmys. In fact, the last time a broadcast network show won was in 2006 for the season five of 24. And before This Is Us was nominated last year, the last time a broadcast network show was even nominated was The Good Wife in 2011. Yeah. <laughs> she's There's just, that. She's feeling sad. <laughs> It's bad, uh, which, I mean, that'll open up our discussion later for This Is Us, and do we include that as our pick? Will we? Kristen looks cynical. Yeah. <laughs> Will we? Stay tuned. It's a, cliff, it's a cliffhanger. What's interesting going through this category is that you think that 
in recent memory, it's all been cable networks and streaming services and premium cable networks that have won in the category. But NBC actually throughout history has the most wins in the category with 21 and CBS has 18. If you go back through, HBO actually just has four, even though you'd kind of expect more. Oh, that's interesting. Of course, you know, think back with NBC and they've got the West Wing and they've got ER and, you know, dramas like that. So... I'm not surprised that they do overall have uh, the most wins, but I, oh, Law and Order, uh, you know, all those nominations. But yeah, I think uh, now it's more of a streaming and cable world, and it's always a surprise, a pleasant surprise when a broadcast show breaks through. That's like the L.A. Law days, right? Yeah. Hill Street Blues? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Lynette, take us through some snubs that still hurt you. Oh, gosh. There are a ton. Um, I'm just going to go with last year, which probably only hurt like two people at EW, but I think it's worth noting because they were very upset about it. The leftovers being uh, passed over for the night. Are uh, you one of those people? I know Dan Snearson was yes. as well. No, it's a, sh- it's a crime. It was, yeah. I don't watch the show, so I didn't, didn't consider it a crime. Did you, Henry? Uh, no, not my thing. I watched a few episodes in the first season and I actually loved, loved, loved the book and was so excited for the show. And then it was such a bummer. I turned it out. It really was. And in the first season, I turned it off halfway through uh, and gave up. And then everyone kept talking about how great it was, how great it was. So I skipped the rest of season one and went right to two. It becomes a totally different show. It's different from the book. And I got hooked on two and three. Loved it so much. All right. Well, that's obviously one. Uh, I think the biggest of all time, and it's like become its own little mantra, um, when you know a show is not... Uh, nominator or snub, you can see, well, we're like the, wa- the Wire, which never won an Emmy. And that's pretty amazing. It never literally won an Emmy uh, in um, in Best Drama. It only received two nominations in season three and one, uh, uh, season three and then one for the series finale. And that was just for writing. So that was just like a big, like, holy crap. The other one is Friday Night Lights. It never got one in the drama category. And the only time it was recognized was in the final season for uh, Kyle Chandler. And then others close to our heart is Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Battlestar Galactica, Alias. And then The X-Files was nominated four separate times, but never won. The last time a genre show actually won, genre does not do well in this category, uh, was Lost in 2005 for season one. Actually, this one I left the best for last for you and me, Henry. Um, I guess you too, Kristen. (laughs) (laughs) The Good Wife. The first and second seasons were nominated in the Outstanding Drama category, but they never won. One, which is total sacrilege. How much do you think is revisionist history and how much do you think these shows were overlooked at the time? Was there a lot of outcry when Buffy wasn't nominated? Was there a lot of outcry at the time when The Wire wasn't nominated? I think those audiences at the time were so small that and nobody would have expected Buffy to ever be nominated. It was on the WB and then the CW or UPN, whatever. Those shows, you know, those networks never get nominated. And The Wire also had such a tiny audience. It's only at after years have passed and people are able to binge watch and see these shows and recognize them for what they are, then you look back and think that's insane that it was never nominated or never won. I Probably within the community of people who watch those shows, they were outraged, but those are the type of shows that never get recognized. So, But Henry, that's what's so extraordinary about The Handmaid's Tale uh, win. Obviously, this is a niche performer. You, you Obviously, you can see from the numbers that not a lot of people watch that show. But it wins in its first year. But The Wire, which arguably reached so many more people, never even got a win. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Well, that's my point. I'm wondering how much the award ceremony and the nominating process and the voting process has changed over the years. It used to be that these popular shows would get nominations 
the Academy often embraced the most popular shows in the nations, which happened to be the most critically acclaimed as well. And now, like something like Buffy or The Wire, I'm wondering today if they would very well get nominated and maybe even win because of the way voting has changed. Well, yeah, you think about it. Back in the day, they would have the um, Red Ribbon voting group. So people met at a hotel. They were in a room. They were forced to watch the show <laughs> with people watching. Now, it's really the honor system. You can get the links and you watch it at home and you hope to God everyone is actually watching the show. Well, it's actually just so much easier, yeah, to watch things now. So I think more stuff does get watched probably than in the old olden timey days where everyone, yeah, had to meet at a think, hotel. But I think that there's probably some like, well, I'm just going to assume EW is right and I'm going to say Handmaid's Tale should win. Because you know we influence. Yes, you know we, do. we influence. Lynette, I totally agree with you. I, I think when people were forced into a room, uh, they had to watch it. If you think about, uh, I'm going to come out about something right now. If you think about your own TV watching habits, like we get screeners and links of stuff all the time. And some of it, quite frankly, just feels like homework. And I got to feel like that's a human emotion that a lot of people feel. And maybe they skip over a few things. <laughs> Totally. Yes. And I think if people actually, when they're forced in a room and they actually are forced to watch an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond, like, oh, man, this is actually pretty good. Right. And then they do have a basis of comparison because they've watched all the ones that are nominated for comedy or whatever. Yeah. That's the key is is pairing them up against one another. And you see. (laughs) Good show. Good show. But a buddy of mine is a voter and he used to participate in a lot of those red ribbon rooms and he looks back at them with fondness because it he says there are so many shows that he wouldn't have given a second glance but because he was forced to watch it, it's like oh dang man yeah, it is good well i also think i remember talking to one voter and having her tell me that there's a bit of out of sight out of mind when something like if you're sitting and voting in june or what have you and something aired last september you're not gonna remember it because there's been so much tv since so i think there's disadvantage there as well That's true. And I mean, it's like when we're coming up with top 10 lists or something for the end of the year, you really do have to make yourself go back and look and say, oh, that's right. That aired this year or that aired in, you know, February. And so that's a lot of work. And I would imagine that these Emmy voters aren't necessarily eager to do extra work. All right, Kristen, as the TV critic, I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. Out of last year's nominees, Better Call Saul, The Crown, Handmaid's Tale, House of Cards, Stranger Things, This Is Us, and Westworld. What were your top three? Better Call Saul. Thinking, thinking. Westworld, Handmaid's Tale. In that order? Yes. Wow. Is that you? <laughs> I can't tell if that's a pleased wow or a can I fire you now wow. Or... <laughs> it's, a, it's a wow, do I disagree wow, but I'm going with You put Better Call Saul first? I love that show. Okay. What's your choice? I would have put the crown first and nothing else. I mean, the (laughs) uh, Stranger Things was pretty dang good, but um, the first season. But I, I just was blown away by the crown. I'm a huge crown supporter. I love the Brits. All right, I would have gone Handmaid's Tale. This is us in House of Cards, and I know I'm a House of Cards apologist, and literally the last one watching it, and I'm okay. I'm still with that. watching. I'll watch till the end. Yes, you are? poor House of Cards has been nominated for every single season, but it's a five-time shutout. I'm a sucker for a political drama, and so I may be a little bit of an apologist for it. Well, and obviously it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the final season with Robin Wright in charge. I wonder if it might get a surge of. Uh, sort of appreciation, you know, sympathy nominee. Yeah. Yeah. And she's great. 
And she deserves one. I so we'll have to wait in, uh, another year to see if it makes it into the mix. But I feel yes. like its time has passed. Yeah. In many ways. Although it's not going to be eligible this year because it's coming out after the eligibility window. Yes. All right. Before we leave our discussion of best drama, I want to give you guys a quiz. Lynette and Kristen, which one of these shows were nominated for best drama? Are you ready? Quantum Leap, Joan of Arcadia, Dynasty, and Fame. Do you want to guess first? Well, I feel like the implication he's making here is these shows don't deserve an Emmy nomination. That's absolutely the implication (laughs) he's making here. And I kind of resent that he included a Scott Bakula show in there. Look, I love a good Quantum Leap just as much, but like, well, Emmys? Wasn't the sci-fi stuff ahead of its time? The Quantum Leaping going on? I mean, I'm going to say Quantum Leap. You're, okay, but are you speaking with your head or your heart? Um, it's more than just my heart, baby. Girl, <laughs> no, you didn't. No, I'm totally quantum leaping this. Yeah. All right. You know what? I'm going to say Joan of Arcadia. Okay. The answer? All four of these shows received Emmy nominations for Best Drama. See? What? He totally, the implication was like, <laughs> what? These shows don't deserve no stinking Emmy. <laughs> wow. Quantum Leap, Joan of Arcadia, Dynasty, and Fame, you think are all Emmy nominee worthy. I mean, I can live with Dynasty. Well, I could tell, the only one I wouldn't, uh, well, Fame. But then remember, there were only three networks when that aired. Yes. Yeah. And Fame was like semi-gritty and whatever, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, sure. You stumped us, Henry. Yeah. Fair enough. Up next, we're going to be talking about who we'd like to see nominated in the best drama category this year, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Chasing Emmy, the podcast for Emmy voters, their friends, and fans of the show. I'm Henry. I'm here with Lynette and Kristen, my fearless co-hosts. Hello. Hello. In this segment, we talk about who we'd like to see nominated this year. We go around the table till we come up with six or seven nominees, depending on the category. I think I'm going to give us seven nominees in this category, because that's what has been in the past. So, Kristen, let's start with you. Who is your first choice? Who's your first draft pick to be nominated for Best Drama this year? I'm going to go Westworld, which is back this year on HBO. It's fantastic. It's obviously very beautiful looking, uh, but the writing is also incredible. The acting is amazing. And this year, it's just as compelling, but I think a little less confusing. I may be alone in this, but I think it will get a nomination. All right, Lynette, up to you. The Crown, again. Uh, I like the season because it really developed the story of the Queen's sister, which was so sad. And, she, and that actress is exquisite. I think this is an incredible show. I think it, it, it um, the timing is perfect because there's obviously newfound interest in, in royalty. And I, I, I just, I love it. Do you think it'll be dinged at all for the fact that it came out that Claire Foy wasn't paid as much as her male co-star? No, I don't think so. I don't think the voters will pay attention to that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can't see that coming in the way. I, though I am very skeptical if it will win. Right. Just because of what happened last year. May I make a confession? Yes. Henry, No. Don't say it. Don't. I've dropped out of the crown a bit. I'll come back for Princess Diana, but I'm not sure I'm coming in before then. Yeah, I watched two episodes and it was really pretty, but it was slow and nothing was happening. And I was like, I can't. I don't understand I gotta go the differences watch between Nashville. us right now. I just don't understand. You binge watch Nashville? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I watched Nashville in real time and will will do so until its final breath. Oh, wow. I know I'm the worst. All right. My first round draft pick is This Is Us. I think it will get nominated again. The house burned down because of a crockpot. 
if that's not a nomination in of itself, I don't know what it is. And if the hosts do not walk on stage with some kind of crockpot gag in the, you know, in the opening monologue, it will be a wasted opportunity. I did talk to Milo about the whole crockpot thing, too, and taking out of life its own. And I did ask him, too. It's like when you were doing this scene, was there a part of you felt bad that you're, you know, knocking such a reliable appliance? Because I kind of felt bad for crockpot because my crockpot has always been reliable. I don't even have the knob on it anymore. I have to use well, yeah. pliers to turn it. Still works. I feel like that's a fire hazard. No, it's fine. It still turns on. Cut yeah. to your house burns. Cut my yeah. Boom. Yeah. Uh, Kristen, I know what we're getting Lynette for her birthday. Lynette, quite opposite. I have never owned a crockpot. I was thinking about it, and now I will not. I, is it like, well, because it, it's a typical wedding gift. I got mine when I was freaking married. Yeah. I got like two <laughs> crockpots. That's how old your crockpot is. It's, yeah, my crockpot's old. I think we just, I can't remember what ma- what my anniversary is. We just, I think we just celebrated, I got married in 1999. Yeah. So you just not, celebrated not, the, my house is going to burn down from this crock pot right. anniversary. <laughs> Either one is going to burn your house down. Get a new one. No, the older ones are really charming because they have brown decor on the uh-huh. outside. Yeah. Okay. Lynette, any appliance that you have to turn on with pliers, it's time to throw it out. <laughs> yes. Like treat yourself. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Kristen, it's over to you. What's your second round draft pick here? I'm going to go Handmaid's Tale. I think uh, it has another strong season. It's could have gone either way, given that they moved past the sort of confines of the book. But they've really done a great job expanding the world and keeping the story just as intense and relevant as ever. So I think it's going to get another nod. Lynette, over to you. Game of Thrones. This last year with the dragons all big, all growed up. And um, the the fiery moments, the CG alone deserves its own special award. It was just extraordinary this year. It was extraordinary. And I could follow along. You know, so many people have died. So now I understand. (laughs) They thinned the herd. They thinned the herd. And now I understand the houses a lot more, too. Lynette, I am totally with you, actually. I feel like it takes a PhD plus a thousand wiki pages in order to understand Game of Thrones. And I feel so much better now that people are dead. are dead. It's so much better. All right. My choice goes under the category of will be nominated. I'm not so sure about whether it should be nominated, but I'm going with Homeland. I think there's a lot of love for that show among the Academy. It's gotten four nominations and one win previously. And this season, I felt the season was kind of uneven. I I enjoyed the Machiavellian president. I love when Claire Danes goes off the rails. So that was fine. But I don't know. I think it's going to get a nomination. I, I'm mixed about bringing it up, but ultimately I think it's going to sweep in. Are we doing one more? We're doing one more, Kristen. All you. All right. I don't watch this show, but I think it will be nominated because it's the final season, The Americans. Uh, And I think, you know, that's one that it's been nominated once before. um, And I think it's one that has had consistent sort of critical love and and praise. So I think given that it's the final season and it's last chance that it will squeak out a nomination. Yeah, I agree. I don't watch the show either. Uh, But I I definitely agree. Did anyone say Stranger Things? No, we didn't. So here are the seven that we've got. We've got The Americans, The Handmaid's Tale, Game of Thrones, This Is Us, The Crown, Westworld, and Homeland. Lynette, do you want to switch something in for something else? I don't think 13 Reasons Why will get... (laughs) Although... Was that your review that just posted? Because yeah, it got I better. You said it got better after initially. Not better than season one, but it is a good season. It's just an ordeal. And I don't think 
and it's too difficult and you know it's melodramatic it's teenagers you know being really dramatic it's not the kind of thing that that the academy is really going to recognize as you know prestige tv so i don't think it's going to get one what about ozark I think that's a dark horse, uh, Ozark on Netflix. People really loved that show. And, you know, it sort of started gaining momentum after, you know, a few weeks after it premiered. I think if anything on this list could make sort of a surprise appearance, it would be Ozark or maybe Killing Eve. Can I throw in a total dark horse here? We talk about sort of big broadcast hits and whether they can squeak into the category. Do you think The Good Doctor would squeak in? I definitely think Freddie Highmore is going to get a nomination for actor. I think it's possible. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think they take care of that show by giving a nod to Freddie and then that's it. Not with, I feel very confident about the seven that we just listed. I actually feel very good. I feel like that's the one category that we're going to get totally right after this. Nice. Well, um, I hope you all will keep us honest and let us know if we don't. All right, we're going to go around for our next segment, Let Us Plead For. I sound like a broken record, but I know Kristen will back me up, and I think you will too, Lynette. The Good Fight, to my mind, is the best drama on television. I don't think, I wish it would get a nomination. I don't think enough people are watching it. It's tucked away on CBS All Access and people have to pay for it and I'm not sure they want to. But Christine Baranski and Kush Jumbo are doing such excellent work. It's the best sort of meta-political commentary that's going on right now. And if you happen to be a conservative listener and think that this show isn't for you because they're critiquing Trump, that's not the case at all. They really approach everything with a very um, balanced hand. I highly recommend it if you can get your hands on it. I agree. It's it's just such an incredible balance of really solid and compelling legal procedural. But then there's just this really bizarre, almost Twin Peaksian edge to it in terms of the the ways that the stories play out and the, you know, uh, the bending of reality and how everything seems so crazy right now, just in, re- in the real world. I think it's incredible TV. I do wish that uh, more people could see it. Uh, hopefully it'll at least get some acting nominations. All right, Lynette, who is your let me plead for? It's a little predictable because I cover this show, but I think there's an argument to be made for Outlander. Uh, It's a superb adaptation of a very popular book series, and that is no small feat. These books are the size of cement blocks. They are so dense and packed with so much history and mythology, but Ron Moore, who, by the way, was already snubbed for Battlestar Galactica, and his writing team that includes Matthew B. Roberts, Tony Graffia, they have done such a terrific job of taking this romantic period piece which really is a secret sci-fi since it involves time travel and turning it into this totally irresistible confection, which I love. Come on, Academy, do it right. That's a plea. All right, Kristen, how about you? Mine is Killing Eve, which is airing now on BBC America. And this is a British drama. It stars Sandra Oh from Grey's Anatomy, and she plays an MI5 agent who becomes obsessed with catching a female assassin named Villanelle, uh, who's played by Jodie Comer. And they get into this sort of cat and mouse chase throughout the course of this series. And it's thrilling and suspenseful and really funny. It's from Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who created Fleabag. And 
and people are just loving it. The ratings are really exceptional for BBC America, and it's really one of the best uh, female ensembles around, so I hope it could sneak in a, a nomination. I'm hearing such wonderful things about that show, Kristen, and I have to be honest, I haven't taken it on yet, and I'm going to this week. And you will just devour it. And where do we find it? BBC America, so you can, I believe, also stream it uh, on their app. Excellent. Well, up next, we've got Lynette's interview with Milo Ventimiglia from This Is Us, so stay tuned for that. In 2016, NBC launched This Is Us, an extraordinary family drama that tells a story through a series of flash-forwards and flashbacks of a young couple who raises triplets, one of whom is adopted. The patriarch of the family is played by the extraordinary Milo Ventimiglia, who is here with us today. Milo, thanks so much for joining us. But before we get into the here and now, how did you get your start in television? Did you start at Warner Brothers TV? Did I see that right? Warner Brothers was the studio that raised me, but I haven't worked there in a very long time. Yes, the Gilmore Girls. Yes. yeah. Oh, I... no, no, no. Before Gilmore Girls. Oh, it was before Gilmore Girls? What I was 20. I was 20. I see. I got in. I got it. Really got into the business when I was 18, when I was still going to school at UCLA. And my first, I'd say, contracted role, I think I was 20, almost 21 years old. And it was a sitcom for Warner Brothers for Fox Network. Uh, and it was called Rewind. It was Scott Bayo's big comeback to TV. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I was it, it basically he and um, Maestro Clark were best friends since childhood. And they had gotten out of a lot of trouble when they were kids. And they were still kind of getting into trouble in an office setting as adults. And they used to kind of rewind back to when they were kids and how they'd get out of similar situations. And I was playing a young Scott Bayo at 20. Mm. So that was my first entrance into Warner Brothers. And then beyond that, it was I had a I had a show called Opposite Sex. Yes. With, um, yeah. Chris Evans and Kyle Howard and a whole bunch of people written by Mark Silverstein and Abby Cohen. That went away. Then the studio put me under contract because uh, they didn't want me working elsewhere. And then as my contract was kind of coming to an end and actually ended, I ended up jumping on to Gilmore Girls. So I'd already had a, I think I was, I was 24, I'd already had a four-year relationship with Warner Brothers before Gilmore even happened. Mm-hmm. You've done a lot of TV. You've had a... <laughs> <laughs> I, have done, I have done 23 years worth of television, yes. Has it, do you feel like it's been good to you? I mean, obviously, even before This Is Us. Um, how'd you feel about your run? Uh, I felt good. I felt like I'd, I'd stretched as an actor. I felt like I had played a lot of different types of roles, different types of young men, different types of, you know, psychos and, and uh, good guys. And it was, it was like the best schooling. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there's, there's an onset training that happens when you're shifting crews and shifting roles. And the accumulation is, it's my favorite place to be when I'm on set. And I really, truly love my job. Did your experience on Heroes change your opinion of television? Because I know it, it ended up having a disappointing end to such an incredible show. How did you feel about that experience? When it was kind of slowly declining or even quickly declining, we used to, amongst the group of us actors, think they're going to have a college course about why this show didn't work. And they're going to really examine it. Um, not just from the outside and blame a writer's strike, but they're going to really tear it open. 
understand what went wrong. But for me, it being on a show for four years that was so white hot and then so ice cold, it didn't dissuade me from television. Television was always my constant. It was always where I found the most work. It was where I found really creative people that were wanting to entertain, but also just like, you know, you, you got a job you punch into every day. There's something nice about that consistency and, and, and even continuity from year to year where you're working with the same crew. So the, the letdown of heroes didn't sour me on television, but I know after that I did focus on features for about three or four years before going back to TV with, I think, um, was it Mob City? I think Mob City might have been my next entrance back into television. But it was, you know, I, I'm a creative guy. I, I go where, where, the, where, the, where the role is, where, you know, people will hire me. <laughs> and television has always been very good to me. The, the network television business has changed so much, obviously, in the wake of what's happening with the streaming services. Before This Is Us, were you skeptical whether a network show could have an impact there's always standards and practices which kind of limit, let's say, uh, real life or heightened life. And you're running up against that in network television. But I never turned my back on the opportunity that network television brought. Again, it's like, I don't care if it's a stage show or network or cable or heck, a student film. If there's a great role and 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 the good creative team behind it it doesn't really matter to me where it plays i think in an acclaim category sure you know there people are pushing the envelope a lot further on in, in cable shows but it doesn't mean the networks are not able to produce shows like this is us you know and have an impact they actually you know they've, they've got the reach to do it because they're available to anyone who's got rabbit ears on their tv yeah you know, and I, I, I like that idea. I like that idea of inclusivity as a, as opposed to exclusivity. You can still be, you can still compete with that exclusive content and be available to everyone. Uh, when you they were talking to you about this is us, did they let you know at that point that you're going to be dead soon and we're basically going to tell <laughs> you your story in flashbacks? <laughs> Dan Fogelman. Uh, Dan, first of all, Dan Fogelman is one of the greatest bosses and more importantly, one of the greatest men I've ever come across mm. um, in my 41 years. He really, truly is uh, as great as everyone says he is. And he's been very upfront with all of us about where the show is going, what our characters are doing. And from the beginning, I knew, I knew that Jack was dead. In the original pilot, there's a conversation between Randall and William where Randall says, oh, yeah, my father, he's not around anymore. And they ended up taking it out of the pilot and moving it a little further to, I think it was the fifth episode where Justin Hartley says it. And I knew. So knowing that I was dead since the beginning, there wasn't going to be this Ned's dark moment where by the end of the first season, I'm like, oh, man, I'm getting my head cut off. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I guess I'll go hit, hit the bricks and, and find a new job. Um, but no, I, I knew, I knew, and it's, it's actually a luxury knowing that this man only has limited amount of time with his wife, with his kid, but 
he lives, Jack lives his life in such a way that regardless of that, that, that end that is coming earlier than everyone would expect, he's living a full life. He's there with his kids. He's there with his family. He's present. He has his flaws. He works through them. He does his best. He even says it like, I think one of the last scenes that I, that Jack had alive is when he's sitting on the hospital bed and Rebecca said something about, I, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was, it was something along the lines of, you know, you, you're really good or something. And he goes, you know, I try. He tries. He really does try. Mm. I, I'm glad you bring up his death. So, because I, I, I got to ask you about the, the fiery mm-hmm. scene quite literally. Sure. Did that take several days to shoot that? And how hot literally did you get? How close did um, you get? It took, it took about six months to, to technically plan. And it took us two, three, maybe two or three days to shoot. Um, I was right there next to the fire, you know, and, and it's in a controlled environment. It is no less scary. It really is a frightening beast of, of a fear machine fire. And we were playing the beats we had to play, you know, get the kids to safety, get the family out of the house. But also there was this real, threat just as a crew like the goal of the, of the of the couple nights we were filming was get everyone home safe make sure you're looking out for everyone keep an eye not only on yourself and your actions but watch everybody else so it was real angry fire that we were working with but in the most controlled setting that we could have uh, on a film set wow so yeah. we so we now know that um, the flame was started by this faulty slow cooker, which has turned became a life of its own. Oh um, man! Oh yes, it did. Yeah. In in the moment, I was curious if you happened to question whether such a thing would happen to such a reliable appliance, <laughs> a spark. You know, I haven't been on a lot of review sites to to know the faulty faulty quality or not of uh, of said device, but I know that it did change from the original kitchen appliance and went to a slow cooker it was originally supposed to be something else and i think it was originally supposed to be something else that had been known to have problems if that got abandoned for whatever reason i don't even know and we moved to the slow cooker but i think it all kind of like fit in with super bowl and making food and all of that it was amazing the backlash oh it's incredible you know? and 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 even you know the, the responsibility of us you know to to stand up for a group that uh, unfortunately was getting all their all all the fingers pointed at them, um, but it's you know that and but it's also one of those things where you really think about the influence of television and you think about the influence of the arts and you go oh my god people are throwing out physical objects that are amazing that make delicious food because. It, they think that a faulty one that was 22 years old, wait, 17, uh, 19, that was 19 years old, was at fault. <laughs> it's like, oh, God. I, I, yeah, we, we, we took sympathy on, uh, on the backlash from that and uh, tried to do something about it. <laughs> All right. So at NBC's Upfront presentation in New York City, there was a, a great clip of Mandy Moore talking about that she didn't know that you will be in the bed 
uh, lying there motionless, and that how she found it uh, when she walks in and, and sees that you're dead. How, did how was that planned out? How did that work out? Glenn Fakara and John Requa, our directors and producers, they we'd had a conversation before, and they were like, you know, Miley, we're not going to see you on this shot. We're actually looking at Mandy at first. I'm like, okay, I I like to be there for my actors. I like to be there for my scene partner. I feel like the best work I'm ever going to do is when I'm doing it for them. Not when the camera's pointed at me, but when I'm doing it for them. So I said, hey, guys, what if you know, I'm there regardless? And they love the idea. And then they also had this image in their mind to drive home to, like, no, nobody ever wanted to see a close-up of Jack dead. Nobody wanted to see that. I think that really would have hurt people. But having the symbolism of him being in that reflection in the background was a really big move and something that Mandy didn't know what the shot exactly was. She didn't realize that they were going to pick me up in the background. And so she, when she walked in, yeah, that, I, I mean, take after take after take after take, you know, she is responding to emotionless me. I mean, and there were some takes where she's walking right up to me and, you know, it's, it's big and it's angry and it's uh, brutally sad. And there are other moments that were held back and I could hear her. I could hear her through all of it, but that was, that was real for her. She didn't know I was going to be there. Mm. She didn't know. She thought she was looking onto an empty bed, you know? And I also like, I, I like being on set. I really enjoy being on set when I'm not working. I just, it's my favorite place to be. It's being on a set. And I'm always, I got my cameras, I'm shooting things and photographing. It's like be there with the crew. And it's hard for me in those moments, like Jack's funeral or Jack's death. I don't want to rattle anyone else by my presence. So I'm always away from the set. But for that, I was like, I really think it's, this is still an important scene for Mandy that I need to, give her what I can give her, even in uh, a laying state. So we know that Jack's main flaw is his drinking. Will you continue to mine that for drama? Uh, that's up to Fogelman and the writers. You know, I, I have a lot of friends who have dealt with alcohol and substance abuse, and they say to me it's a minute-by-minute minute daily struggle, even when you're sober. So... As an actor, whether we go back to that well or not, I know that it is in the back of my mind every time I'm working. It's, it's that idea. It's a, it's a constant knocking on the door of, of a disease saying, hey, hey, open the door. Hey, hey, I'm right here. Hey, hey, don't you want to hang out? So I'm aware of it, but it doesn't mean that it needs to be at the forefront of a scene when I'm hanging out with my kids, teaching them how to drive. But it's there. It's always in the back. And that's, that's also the joy, I think, of television. You get to build these characters. I get to build this man from his experiences and from my imagination, as well as knowing, kind of understanding what's coming. I get to constantly have these memories that sit in my character's head like they would in my own, to where when the cameras, when, when action is called and the cameras are rolling, I take, I personally, Milo, take a back seat and I get to exist as Jack. 
and he's just living instinctually as he would because he's been through a lot in his life. So how are you not looking over your shoulder? It just it feels like there has to be an expiration date to the flashbacks of pop, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean I'm realistic. I'm very realistic. I know that at some point this show will end. At some point people will put their attention on something else and that's okay. That's, that's kind of what happens even in life. And, you know, there's the challenge of kids growing up and we kind of lose the ability to jump back to certain eras and decades because, you know, eight-year-olds are no longer eight, they're 10 or 12. So I, I think, yeah, there, there is an expiration date, but I'm not thinking about it. My, my, my cog description is wear the makeup, read the lines, mm. you know? So I, I have a lot of faith in our writing team. I mean, like I said, Fogelman is one, he, one of, if not the best I've ever worked with. And Isaac Aptaker and Elizabeth Berger and KJ Steinberg. I mean, everybody, our entire writing staff, they're so talented and such a diverse group of thinkers that I think the, the show will go as long as there is story. I really think it will. And maybe it expires when, well, I guess we're out of story. But also, I'm just going to enjoy it while it's happening and be present and not worry about what happens down the line or what built me for 23 years to get me to this moment. Appreciate it, respect it, but here I am right now. So clearly you played the most lovable man in the world. Have you noticed fans treat you differently based on the role you're currently playing? Like, do women want to hug you versus what, your time on Heroes? Oh, yeah, 100%. And it's, and it's everyone. On Heroes, it was, you know, more of a comic book crowd uh on gilmore girls a lot of mother daughters and maybe like one or two guys are like yo man i watched that with my girlfriend i love it but then this show it it's everyone it's young it's old it's every race it's every gender it's everybody has something they are connecting to on the show and even like the unlikely storylines people are connecting to those just because it's it's human it's all human it's all relative to what we feel or what we fear or what we aspire to be or or what really builds us up and makes us happy and it's encouraging when people are approaching with a smile and wanting to kind of share their story and that's that's the nicest thing when it's not just the exchange of hey can I have a photo it's hey I adopted someone I adopted a child and I had a hard time and my wife and I or my husband and I we watched your show and you know, we really were inspired by the way you and, and your TV wife, you know, raised your family, your, your, your birth kids, as well as your adopted kids. And stuff like that is encouraging. Again, I go back to the idea of how the arts can impact culture and society and humanity. And it's still very valuable and it's still very valid. So it's, it's nice. It's nice when people are walking up to you with a smile and embracing the work that you're doing. And then as an artist, knowing that it's important for the happiness in their lives and the lessons they're learning. It's really, really a remarkable phenomenon. I mean, this is us feels like a mathematic impossibility. You know, what the show is doing 
to change the landscape, what the show is inspiring. And then beyond that, when we're on set, like, it's, everyone's really cool. Everyone's really, really nice. Everyone is so engaged in what we are doing that it's one of those dreams you don't want to wake up from. You just, you want to be on it. You want to be in it because it's such a beautiful experience. Well, that's a perfect place to wrap it. Milo, thank you so much for talking to us. This was great. Absolutely. Thank you. And I appreciate it. Bye-bye now.